I'm going to have you stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. And I, I want to pray. Uh, this past week, you know, we had some people that uh, went to be with the Lord. That's exciting for them. Not so exciting for some of the people that remain behind. But we're going to remember in prayer, uh, Trish Robichaud, her mother, went to be with the Lord yesterday. If we can remember them in prayer. I just chatted with Trish. She's, she's rejoicing. Her mom's doing great. Uh, it's the rest of us that stay behind that aren't maybe doing as good, but she's doing well. But, but let's continue to support her and her family in prayer. And then Tom Lesher's mom went to be with the Lord uh, this past Wednesday. She was 97 years old. And so Tom was rejoicing, but I said, it doesn't matter if your mom's a 190 years old, you're still gonna miss them, right? So we wanna pray for that family as well. And maybe you're here this morning, you have another need on your heart. Let's just lift them up before God this morning. Can we do that? Let's just lift our hands and say, Lord, these are the things that are on my heart. Maybe there's challenges before you. There's other people in our church family, Father, that are battling with cancer. They're battling with maybe uh, fiscal pressures in their life, uh, job-related pressures. They've got relational tensions. Lord, you know all the things that befall us as human beings, Lord. You know, in this world, we will have trouble. Lord, you certainly have proven that to be true. There's always some issue, challenge, difficulty we're dealing with. But we have this great assurance that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, you will walk with us through every challenge. And I pray right now, if we're discouraged, I pray that you would lift that heaviness right now, fill us with joy, with hope, with peace, with comfort, with encouragement, Father, so that when we leave this place, we have sensed your divine presence we know that you've heard our cry from the innermost parts of our being. You've heard our request. And Lord, I believe that your answer is on its way. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Are we having a problem? I'm having a problem. Okay. Okay. All right. That's Okay, it's good. Seems better. Okay, thanks, Chris. I need all the help I can get. <laughs> so thank you. Great Russian novelist Alexander Solhenitsyn, Solhenitsyn was speaking at a reward, award ceremony. He was receiving the Temple Award, and he shared uh, regarding the spiritual demise of the country of Russia. And he said these words. He said, if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revelation that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more bluntly than to repeat, men have forgotten God. And that's why all this has happened. If you take nothing out of the message, that's it. If we forget God, all that's left are some very serious consequences. Actually, uh, the solution, according to historian Richard Weaver, he says the right use of reason, because I think there's a wrong root use of reason, but the right use of reason, which entails a recognition of absolute reality and a recognition that ideas like actions have consequences. So if you and I have the wrong idea. If we start believing things that are not true, that will lead us into a state of deception, which will eventually lead us 
away from God's purposes for our lives. So I raise a number of questions. Why is it that people who know what is right to do often refuse to do it? That's a good question. Or why do people suppress the truth and would rather believe a lie than believe the truth? Because if the truth sets people free, what do lies do? Leads us into bondage. What keeps us from moving forward in our relationship with God? And Jeremiah now is going to address the painful issue in Jeremiah chapter 8 of willful sin. Choosing to do the wrong thing or refusing to hear what God is trying to say to us and we're just doing our thing. So why would a nation who had a covenant relationship with God and were entrusted with the very words of God not return to him? I mean, that's a good question. Like, these people knew better. I mean, they knew what God required. Or maybe they did. We'll see. Jeremiah now is going to address this this, uh, situation. I, I just want to put it in more of a modern way of looking at it. How do people who once professed faith in God go off the rails and find their lives broken, distorted, and in despair as a result? How many have ever noticed there were people, and all of a sudden their lives go off the rails, and next thing you know, it's just a mess. Havoc, devastation, destruction, relationships blown up, you know? What happened? Isn't that a good question? What happened? Jeremiah is going to talk to us about that in Jeremiah chapter 8 when we discover three aspects in understanding the resistance we have towards God's call in our lives. And the first aspect when we resist is simply how irrational that decision really is. Doesn't make any sense. Why would a healthy, normal person that understands things make such bad decisions? You know, I'm often asked by people, you know, like, why do people do that? I'm going, you're trying to understand sin. And sin is not rational behavior. Rational behavior is when you're doing something that's going to benefit yourself and other people. But sin is irrational because it never benefits us nor those around us. So why would we do that? Because deep down inside, we make the assumption that what we think we want seems attractive to us at the moment, and we desire it, but eventually it turns out to be anything what we really wanted, and it created terrible havoc in our lives. And we need look no further than our first parents in the Garden of Eden. As a matter of fact, we read in Genesis 3.1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Now, how many know anytime you and I entertain temptation rather than to identify it for what it is and take it captive and make it obedient to Christ, what happens is it begins to ensnare us and eventually it will put us in grave danger. It'll affect our lives in a negative way. Look what happened in verse six. They had a little conversation. How many know talking to the devil is not a smart thing to do? It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, because remember, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you're gonna be like God. You're gonna know good and evil. She thought, hey, God's holding back on me, something I really need to know. I think God was protecting her from something that was terrible. She didn't need to know, and Adam didn't need to know, but she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it, and we know the rest is history. 
talk about from that day forward, everything had changed for Adam and Eve. We realize that, right? Total transformation. Sin has a way of destroying what is good in our lives. Do we believe that? Some of us. Here in Jeremiah chapter 8, we move back from the precious narrative verses to now poetic passage again. Okay, so last week, when you looked in your Bible, remember I told you that we had poetry, poetry, poetry. We got to a narrative part. But if you notice again in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles here, or even uh, you take a look, now you're moving back to poetry, which means there's a lot of parts there that are going to be spoken to us in a metaphorical way. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, What we're going to see is an expose on the subtle nature of sin and its consequences to a people who had confessed they had a relationship with God, but they were not doing what God required. And therefore, they were sinning against God, and God was trying to get their attention, and they refused to listen and refused to return to God. And so Jeremiah now begins to explain what is about to happen. First of all, God reveals to the prophet the sense of incredulity. Like, he was like amazed. Like, really? You guys don't understand what's going to happen? Regarding the lack of rationality and sinful behavior. Verse 4, it says, so say to them, this is God now speaking to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. When people fall down, do they not get up? When people turn away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit and they refuse to return. It's interesting. Robert Davidson, uh, Old Testament scholar, says in verses 4 to 7, we're introduced as God's word to people through the prophet, but it could equally represent Jeremiah's thought that was puzzling to him, this irrational conduct of the people. Like, why are they doing this stuff? You know, and the natural thing to do when you fall down actually is to what? Pick yourself back up again. But these guys weren't doing that. You learn by experience, but apparently God's people here were not doing that. This point is hammered home in the second half of verses four through five. Five times forms of the word shub, turn, are used. We might translate these verses. Does not one turn aside and not turn back? Why is this a turncoat people involved in perpetual turning? They resort to deceit. They refuse to turn. So you have to understand something about the word turn. That's the word repent in the Old Testament. Returning to God. Turning to God. You know, you don't usually read the word repent in the Old Testament. It's turn to me. Return to me. That's the concept. And so God is calling the people to come to him. Now, how many think it might be smart of God saying, hey, I want you to come over here. And we go, I'm not interested. You see, that's kind of the picture I'm trying to portray here for us. The people were not responding to God. So, uh, when we think about how good God is, how gracious God is, how merciful God is, it's a little bit inconsistent on our part not to respond to God, right? So Davidson goes on to challenge us. We tend to think of our failures and our disloyalty to God as just somehow natural. Like, hey, After all, aren't we just sinners anyways and we're going to just default to sin? Kind of concept. And Davidson makes a very strong point and I was really, this really gripped me this week as I was preparing this message. He says, they are in fact unnatural and out of character for those who claim to be committed to God. 
Now that's interesting. What he's saying is our natural default as a believer is to turn to God. It's unnatural and we have to work at turning away from God. That's interesting, isn't it? He says our homing instinct should be towards God, not away from him. So I'm just saying the normal and natural response to a believer is continually moving towards God. That's our normal response. Now, I think we could say that's true for a a genuine believer. Now, that doesn't mean there's not moments we fail. I'm not suggesting we never sin. I'm just saying that the normal uh, default switch in a true child of God is towards God. Isn't that beautiful? How many of you like that idea? I love that idea. There's something inside of me that wants to please God. There's something inside of me that says, I want to have God's favor in my life. There's something inside of me that says, I want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do your will. I want to bring glory to you, God. That's the natural response of a believer. But let's take a look at the non-believer for a minute. Yeah, I know they run, and I know they hide. They're kind of like, we all do this. We know when we sin, there's a tendency to want to run away because we're dealing with shame and guilt, right? But the best thing we can do is run to God. You know, I remember when Rachel was a little child, you know, she was like two years old. She had done something. She was drawing on the wall with crayons, okay? And at two years old, she already knew that wasn't the right thing to do. So she goes downstairs and goes to her mom and she says, I naughty. Takes her by the hand, brings her up to her bedroom on the second floor and shows her what she did. You see, that's the right response. I naughty. I've got to take care of the problem, you know? (laughs) We didn't get into, like, at two, you don't ask them, why'd you do it? You know, it's just like, I know it was the wrong thing to do. Sorry, let's move on. Good. But God, you know, but when you're, when you're uh, a non-believer, and I, and I think this is even true for believers, God has designed us in such a way that we must suppress truth within ourselves to distance ourselves from God. You have to, you know, like, how many, you know, when you've done something wrong, God's spirit is speaking to you, You know, for you not to act on what God's asking you to do, you have to kind of suppress that inside of you. You got to put that aside. You got to get rid of that because it's hounding you. God is trying to deal with us to deal with what's going on in our lives. And this is what Paul is saying as human beings, even when we're not believers, that the way God designed every human being, we're made in his image. And so God says, look, I've created you in such a way that you know that I exist. And Paul says it this way in Romans uh, chapter one. He says, now the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So that's when we do the wrong thing, what we're doing is suppressing truth. He goes on to say, so that what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. What's he talking about here? Well, let's look at the next verse. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So what's he saying in verse 20? He says, number one, everybody knows there is a God, okay? So if you and I say, well, there is no God, we have to suppress that knowledge somehow. And the way we do it is that we have to deny that there is somehow a creator. Now, I want you to think about how hard that is for a minute. Now, even the scientists today, lots of them are saying, look, this world is so complex now, and the more we study and the more we know, we've come to the conclusion there has to be intelligent design. Now, they're not saying God, but they're saying 
How, how many know, like, you can't have what's going on in our world and say this all happened randomly and by chance or accident. It's too complex. So now you have people acknowledging there's a designer. And if you've got a designer, you've got a creator. And because you have a creator, you're basically saying there's a God. And so God says, listen, I've designed it in such a way that I've created this world with the intent that you would know that I created it. And so humanity is without excuse. Starts flat out. That's Paul's argument in chapter one. But you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, There's another argument that Paul brings out in chapter two. And here's his second argument. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, he says people that are non-Jewish, they're not under law now, he says, do by nature things required by law. In other words, they're doing exactly what the law says, even though they don't know they're doing it because the law says it. He says, they are locked for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. So what is he saying? God designed human beings with a conscience. We have a moral consciousness. We have a sense of right and wrong. Everybody's got it. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. There's some people that do some terrible things. They don't even seem to have a conscience. Yeah, they had to work to get to that point, though. You see, the culture right now is working to move away from God's good moral boundaries, and we're shifting them, but we're only doing that to our own hurt. Because when God creates a moral boundary, he does it for our benefit. He does that for our well-being. He does it so that we don't destroy ourselves. And when you study anthropology, of course, the anthropologists think Christians are wrecking the world. Some of them do anyways. I went to university. I got told all that. But here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's the real problem. If you leave people moving the moral boundary lines long enough, eventually that culture degenerates and eventually becomes extinct. And so when we study history, there are entire societies that are no longer in existence because they, by nature, moved away from God's healthy moral boundaries, and now they're no more. We need to understand that. Now, why are we bringing all this up? Because what I'm trying to get across to you is is that simply, uh, we are designed to know God. We're designed to know God. And you can sense it when you're talking to people because there is a restlessness within the human soul. And, and I love it because we're made in the image of God and there's a, you know, people will say it this way, there's a God-sized vacuum in our soul. God has a place in our life that until he fills it, you and I will never be satisfied. You can look for it in all the false substitutes you want. You'll never find satisfaction. And I love how Augustine, who eventually became a believer, he was a philosopher and tried to, you know, he thought Christianity had all kinds of problems. His mother was a Christian. He thought the Bible was, you know, the language was too simplistic. He had all kinds of issues. He had the intellect. But eventually God got a hold of him. He got convicted. He got, became a believer. And then he writes his autobiography. It's a book called Confessions. It's beautiful. And the very beginning, it's, you know, this whole book is a prayer. It's just one long prayer. And here's how he starts his prayer. Our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. Isn't that beautiful? So if you're wondering why you're so restless, get to know God better. That's the secret. It's getting to know God. That's where the answer is. But so often people cling to deceit. 
Rather than repent and turn back to God, Jeremiah tells us that they, they refuse to return. We've already read that in Romans, they're suppressing the truth. Here in Jeremiah chapter uh, 8, verse 5, it says, they, they, yeah, I've already said that, they cling to deceit. Then in verse 6, it says, I've listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, what have I done? Each pursues their own course like a horse charging into battle, you know, they're kind of singing Frank Sinatra's song, I'll do it my way, you know. I've done it my way. Well, let me tell you, there's a better way of doing it than your way. It's God's way. And God's way is always the best way. And you say, why is that? Because God's designed you and me, and he gave us certain abilities and gifts, and he has a purpose for each one of our lives, and we were designed for his glory. And when you and I discover that, and we find out what God has in mind, it gets really exciting. And so I feel bad for people who don't want to know what God has in store because their lives are less than what God intended. So myself, I want you to discover the best and get to know the will of God and discover how good God is and enjoy his presence and delight in him. That's beautiful. John Thomas writes it this way, in willful fashion, each man turns away in headlong career like a horse storming into battle. That headlong plunge is no gentle turning aside, but a deliberate and vigorous action. He says, that's a vivid vivid picture. You know, you ever notice that some sinners, they just go headlong into sin, like a horse charging into battle. How many know that that horse is excited about going into battle? They can sense it. They go in there, but you know what? Within an hour or so less, they could be gone. And how many people charge into sin, and you know what? They never know what it's going to do to them. It can take them out in a moment. You know, it's really tragic when you hear somebody, you know, they'd never taken drugs before, and they take a drug and they overdose the first time. How tragic is that? It's not like they're addicted. They just made a bad choice. They went headlong into a pursuit that was deadly. Kemper Longman says, why are they deceived? And he says, it's simply stated, it's a reference, as he said, to the message of the false prophets who are telling them, there's no coming judgment and everything is okay. A false sense of security. Uh, And then Jeremiah illustrates how irrational and unnatural it is for us not to turn our lives to God, not to come to him when he's calling. He says, even the stork in the sky knows her appointed season, and the dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. Isn't it amazing that instinctually animals behave a certain way? They're wired by God to do the right thing. But he says, you know, as human beings, we have a will, and sometimes we just don't know what God's requiring. We're out of whack, and it causes deep problems for our lives. And that moves us to the second aspect which is being in a state of deception. How many know that sin is actually a state of deception? That's what it says. Uh, Read Hebrews, it tells you that. Rather than facing the truth regarding our condition, we often prefer to believe a lie. And the source of this lie creates a false sense of security. People can even hide behind something as wonderful as the word of God when it's applied incorrectly or not applied at all. I mean... Just think of the text here as we're going to look at the deceptive handling of God's word. In verse 8, it says, How can you say we are wise, for we have the law of the Lord, when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? So they're interpreting it incorrectly. Verse 9, The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do you have? 
Therefore, I will give your wives to the men, to other men in their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain, prophet and priest alike, all practice deception. So now he's giving us the reason why they're giving this false message. Because they're not preaching what God's saying. They're saying something to, you know, so people want to hear it, and they're, the, they're benefiting because they're getting remunerated. It's out of greed that they're doing that. Warren Worsby says something interesting regarding this text. He says, just as they boasted that they possessed the temple, so they boasted that they had the divine law. But possessing the scriptures isn't the same as practicing the scriptures. How many know that's true? There's a big gulf between reading something and applying it. I would argue that knowing something intellectually is a lot different than putting it into practice. And really, until you put the Bible into practice, it's just information. The moment you put it into practice, it's transformation. It changes you. That's how powerful it is. Now, let me just share a thought with you. Do you realize that for most Christians, we don't take the word of God as seriously as we ought to? You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Because they've done, a, they've done surveys over a number of years now, and they find that only 20% of people who profess to be Christians actually read the Bible daily. 20%. Now, listen to this. They're also discovering that 80% of people who say they're Christians have the same exact value system as the culture in which they're living in. And I would venture to say that that 80% is the same 80% that don't read their Bibles daily. You know, and if I was to take a survey here really fast, you'd be shocked at how many people say, yeah, I have to admit, I don't read my Bible daily. And what's happening is you're not communicating with God. Can you just imagine having, saying, well, I have a relationship with God, but you just never talk to him very often. You know, how good are you gonna get to know him? Something profound happens when you start spending time in God's word daily. It starts to change your attitude, the way you approach life. It gives you the, school, the skills and the tools needed to address the things that you're gonna face on a daily basis. You know, although the Bible is still a bestseller, its popularity isn't keeping Western society from crumbling morality and spirituality. How many go, that's true? And that's the point. People aren't reading it and they're not applying it. There appears to be no connection between what people say they believe and the way people act. That's scary. No application. The false prophets who claimed to be writing and speaking in the name of the Lord deceived the kingdom of Judah. They were men whose personal lives were godless, whose hearts were covetous, and whose remedies for the problem of the nation were useless. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? These people were looking to these people and it was destructive in their lives. The false prophet's message could be summarized in these verses. But I said, alas, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling him, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. Here's God's response to Jeremiah. He says, the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I've not sent them. They're prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatry, and the delusions of their own mind. What is he saying? They're talking out of their head, but they haven't got a clue what they're saying. It's not what I'm telling them to say. That's pretty strong language. How many get a feeling here? You know, Jeremiah's kind of in a minority position. He's telling people what God's saying. And the majority of preachers are telling people what they want to hear. How many know if you just tell people what they want to hear, it may not be what they need to hear. You've got to tell them the whole counsel of God. Jeremiah describes the kind of remedy that these preachers and, and teachers were suggesting, and they were inadequate for solution. This is now poetic language. Listen to what he says here in verse uh, uh, 
okay. Oh, yeah, let me go back here. That's important. I like what uh, Warren Worsby says. What happens to the Lord's people largely depends on the leaders they follow. Worldly leaders attract and produce worldly people, but you pay a price to follow spiritual leadership. It's much easier to drift with the current and go along with the crowd. Jeremiah had few friends or disciples because his message wasn't popular. It's true. Do we want to hear what God has to say? Or do we want to hear what we want to hear? Big difference, many times. They dress the wounds, it says, of my people as though we're not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush, so they will fall among the fallen, and they will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. Do you know what happens to people who are preaching the false message? They perish along with the people who are going to be judged by God. And, you know, if you want to get an example of it, study the story of Balaam. He gave the wrong counsel. He was a false prophet. He said the true things at that moment, but then he was taken out later on. And you read that in the scriptures. It says here they have no shame and are unable to blush. Sin has made major inroads in our lives when we feel, no longer feel any shame or guilt for the sin that we're committing. That means we're now in a defeated state. Our consciences become seared, or they become unable to speak to us any longer. Paul talks about that when he's writing that in the last times, the Spirit says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Wow, that's pretty strong language. Well, how do demons teach us bad things? They do through people, just like God's Spirit works through people, teaching the right things. He goes, such teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. In other words, you know, these people have, they don't have a, a conscience. So they can say all kinds of stuff, but it's all hypocrisy. They can tell you one thing, but then do something totally differently. You know, your life has to match what you're talking. That's really critical. Okay, Walter Brueggemann says, the inability to blush means that there's no outside reference point to whom one must answer and by whom one is measured. They don't have anywhere that they're being, there's no, there's no plumb line for their lives is what he's saying. Faithful people blush in the presence of a faithful God because the contrast between Yahweh's hope and their conduct is so stark. In other words, if you and I stand in God's presence, we're gonna recognize that there's some areas that probably need to change. And that'll show up real fast. You know, when as here, however, the faithful God has been effectively banished, the fickleness is no longer recognized as embarrassing. In other words, they don't recognize that they're just doing their own thing and it doesn't, it's no big deal to them. Well, it is a big deal and that's why they're not responding because they're, they're messed up, is what he's saying. As a matter of fact, Abraham Herschel says, the loss of embarrassment is a decisive step towards the loss of humanness. That's a powerful statement. In other words, if you and I are never, you know, we never are ashamed of anything we ever do, we're, we're becoming less than human. We're be, we're, that's a very dangerous place to get to. We're, we're, we're being diminished as human beings is what he's arguing. Let me go to the final aspect or the motivation for the false message. We've already said it. From the least to the greatest of these priests and prophets, they're all greedy for gain. The third one, the judgment that inevitably happens. So think about this for a minute. They're resisting God's call on their lives. Jeremiah goes, I don't get why they're doing this. It's not making any sense. It's irrational. And I would say, you're right. Sin is irrational human behavior because it's always self-destructive and it affects other people negatively. 
Number two, it means that we're in a state of deception. We think we're okay when we're not. Number three, it always inevitably leads to judgment because if you and I don't recognize we have a problem, we don't fix it. How many know if you don't think you're sick, you're never going to go see a doctor and get treated? If you don't know that you're sick spiritually, you're never going to get any sort of help to deal with what's going wrong in your life. And you're going to suffer the consequences of what's happening inside of your soul. There's always outcomes to our actions. After being repeatedly warned by different prophets over hundreds of years, without any course correction, judgment was inevitable. In verse 13, it says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. And what I have given them will be taken from them. What's he saying? Sin always leaves us with great loss. You know, it always ends up in barrenness. We can expect that we're going to lose out. What we thought we had is going to be taken away from us. As a matter of fact, we make an assumption so often that what is mine is mine. And can I just shatter that in our minds right now? That's a thought that we have, but it's a wrong thinking. Uh, you just think about this. God says, I'm going to remove this stuff from them. God is, has every right to take whatever you have in your life and to remove it from you. You say, why is that? Because he gave it to you. And Job had that correct understanding in the book of Job when he lost all of his income, you know, and he even lost his children. How tough was that? And he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. You and I cannot walk around saying, I got ripped off. No, you and I have been given life. You and I have been given a brain. You and I have been given a family. You and I have been given a heritage. God has blessed us with so many myriad blessings, but we're really stewarding it all. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells a very interesting parable, and I think we need to hear this parable sometimes. And I think it helps us understand why there's a kind of a sense of inequality in life sometimes. This isn't just you know taking advantage of people, but this is what Jesus said from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, another translation says required. So here's what God does. For some people, he gives more to them. But then God says, okay, I've given you this much, I'm gonna require more from you. And he says, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. But the one he's given less to will be asked less of. So we need to understand something. God is gonna, if God has greatly blessed your life, or, and here's another big important thought, or God has given you great opportunity and you don't take advantage of it, that's not good either. So you and I need to buy up and take advantage of what God's brought into our lives and then use everything God brings to you and to me and we use it for his honor and glory. That's what it's all about. And let me explain something to you. You know, a lot of people don't realize this. This will enrich you. You do not become diminished because you're giving your life fully to God. The more you give to God of yourself, the more enriched your life becomes. And the more you withhold from God your life, the, less, the more diminished you become as a person. It's really a tragic situation. So I'm just telling you, it's, it's, I love what Jim Elliott once wrote. He said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What is he saying? He's saying, give up everything for God and you're, you're not gonna lose anything because ultimately we're gonna be with God. 
And at the end of the day, all that God gave you right now is a stewardship that you're going to be accountable to God when you stand before him in heaven. He's going to say, how did you do with what I gave you? Uh, I just used it on myself. Yeah, that's not a good thing to say to God when you're there. You know, it's like burying that treasure in the ground. Not good, right? Then you see the certainty of judgment, verses 14 to 17. Why are we sitting here? This is the people now. Gather together. Let's flee to the fortified cities and perish there. How many know people without God have no hope? Can you hear it in that statement? They know an army's coming. Now they're in the little towns and they're going, we better run to Jerusalem, better run to a fortified city. Oh, by the way, we'll probably get beat up there anyways. We'll just die there. Wow, isn't that a great strategy? I could easily make a comment, I won't. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and given us poisoned water to drink because we've sinned against him. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a little allusion here to the wilderness experience when they went along and the bitter water was there. Remember, all those guys in the wilderness, they did a lot of complaining. Anybody know that? Book of Numbers, read that book, tells you that. He says, we hope for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there's only terror. Can I just say that when you and I don't put our hope in God, our expectations are usually false and our hopes are not realized. That's what's happening here. Verse 16, the snorting of the enemy's horses is heard from Dan. Now, Jerusalem is in the southern part. Dan is part of the northern kingdom. It's, it's quite a ways away, believe me. And here they're saying, I can even hear from the north an enemy is coming. This is poetic language. At the neighing of their stallions, the whole land trembles. They have come to devour the land and everything in it, the city and all who live there. What are they saying? We are going to be taken over by an occupancy army. And how many know they're just going to take advantage? They're going to enslave us. They're going to take everything we have. They're going to take everything we've accumulated. They're going to use it for themselves. We are going to be enslaved by them if we can survive. Talk about... And the people are now saying this. Jeremiah's now moving it forward. People are beginning to realize they've, they've kind of crossed the Rubicon, if I can use that expression, and they're in trouble and they know it. Verse 17, see, I will send venomous snakes among you, vipers that cannot be charmed, and they will bite you, declares the Lord. Now, the venomous snakes aren't literal snakes he's sending across the land of Israel. That's a picture of this army bringing destruction into their wake. But again, I see an allusion to another time in their history. Remember back in the wilderness? What was going on? They were complaining about Moses and the Lord and what was going on. And God got tired of it. And it says here in the book of Numbers, then the Lord said venomous snakes among them. And they bit the people and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, as bad as that generation was, at least they cried out to God for mercy. And you know what God did? Listen to this. This is so amazing to me. When you and I cry out for mercy, what do you think God gives us? Mercy. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, what's going on here? First of all, God says, I'll make a provision for you. Number two, if you obey what I'm telling and respond in the right way, in an act of obedience, which is really motivated by faith, you're going to be saved. 
Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful picture. Now, Jeremiah's generation didn't even bother calling out to God for deliverance, and they were destroyed. They didn't even pick up on this beautiful cue that Jeremiah had given them. Remember, these people are steeped in Scripture. They know these stories. But now I want to move even further into the story. Look at the contrast between uh, Jeremiah's day and the people in the wilderness. You see the brokenhearted prophet. And I think it reflects the heart of God. He's crying out the heart, excuse me, he's crying out to God in his distress at the suffering that is and will come upon the people. And Jeremiah is not one of these guys that said, well, I told you so. He's not that kind of guy. As a matter of fact, I read in verse 18, you who are my comfort, he's speaking to God, in sorrow, my heart is faint within me. And then God responds, listen to the cry of my people from a land far away. So already it's either there, some of them are in exile because it kind of was in phases or this is going to happen in the future. I can hear them crying out, is the Lord not in Zion? Is their king no longer there? Why have they aroused my anger with their images, with their worthless foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer has ended and we are not saved. And what, what's, he, what's he talking about? Well, let's just point it to you this way. Sin always causes us to go into exile. We're separated from God. See, the land spoke of the presence of God. They were now exiled from God's presence. The tragedy was they had an opportunity. But listen to this verse. This is really a sad verse in this chapter. He goes, the harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. Uh, think about you're an agrarian. You're a bunch of farmers right now. Your crop has been planted. It's grown, but we haven't got the crop off. The weather's not been conducive to it, and now all of a sudden, it's too late. The crop is dead. It's dying in the fields, and there's nothing we can do about it. The harvest has passed. The summer has ended, and we're not saved. Jeremiah is basically saying, that's what people are going to say. We had an opportunity. We didn't take it. And now we're perishing. How many go, that's a tragic statement. Verse 21, since my people are crushed, Jeremiah says, I'm crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. He says, is there no balm in Gilead? That means is there an ointment, some healing ointment? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. How many go, this is pretty passionate. This is, this is deep compassion. Jeremiah's weeping because he's going, I've poured out my heart. I've shared your message, God, but they didn't listen. And all I see now is this destruction coming their way. And I'm weeping. I'm brokenhearted. I, I don't sense in Jeremiah, you know, this guy railing on the people. I sent someone who had a deep love for people, was pleading for them to turn their lives around and was crushed when they didn't do it. It would be like a parent talking to their child and saying, please. It would be like I've had this moment where I'm sitting in my office pleading with someone not to go through with an action that would totally destroy their family. And, I, and they said, I'm gonna do it anyways. How crushing. What a terrible moment. I've had moments like that. It's heart-rending. And you can just see the pain that's going to emerge. What happens when we reject what God's offering? 
What happens when our hearts become hardened and we embrace a false narrative, clinging to deception and believing lies? What happens when the tears of God's servants are expressing the pain of a lost opportunity for deliverance? And then I'm reminded of his final story. Well, two of them with Jesus. One of them, Jesus is now coming up to the city of Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. And after all of the events of that day, he climbs back up on the hillside of the Mount of Olives and he looks over the city and we read these words. He saw the city and he wept over it. He saw the city and he wept over it. What a powerful statement. Why was he weeping? If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. In other words, your day of opportunity came and you didn't embrace it. You didn't recognize it. You didn't respond to it. And then he's talking a little later, and it brings me back to the story in the wilderness. Nicodemus and Jesus are talking. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, just as the Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see, that biting venomous serpent actually represents the power of sin. And what does Jesus do? He comes to this planet and becomes sin for us and hangs on a cross, becoming the cursed of God. He's the sin offering. He becomes sin for us, who knew no sin that we might take on the righteousness of God. God is making an offer to us. And then everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus was basically challenging his own culture at that time, challenging Nicodemus. I want you to think of how irrational sin is and the inevitability and the consequences of sinful behavior upon ourselves and others. The only hope is to look up. The only hope is to look to God. I'm gonna just say something. I'm gonna maybe shift your thinking a little bit. I know we have a lot of things happening in our country right now. And you're probably thinking, what I'm talking about has no relevance to it. And I'm gonna say to you right now, this has the most relevance. And I'm gonna tell you why. If you think you and I are smart enough to handle all of these problems, forget it. Here's what I think the church needs to be about. We need to take the role of the prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was on his knees, weeping for his people. You know, he was bringing the message to the people. We have a responsibility to our culture. You know, our culture's gotten here And you say, well, how did we get here? I think we've been a bit distracted sometimes as the church of Jesus Christ. When I take a look at, you know, are we we brokenhearted over what's happening? You know, are we really crying out to God in prayer? Are we really weeping over the sins of our land and over our own sin? Because I think if that happened, there would be such a spiritual awakening in in this nation, that a lot of the problems that we're seeing that none of us in this room can solve, and many times when we try to solve them, we just make things, we make more of a mess, is what I'm saying. I think it's time to look up. I think it's time to live. I think it's time to ask God to come and bring his grace into our land and into our hearts and into our homes where we're seeking the face of God every day. Let's stand. I'm not going to ask 
an altar call here, but I, I just want to pray in closing. And, you know, my cry has, has been, Lord, bring us to yourself. Draw us to yourself. You know, if it wasn't a pandemic, it could easily be uh, a drought. If it wasn't a pandemic or a drought, it could easily be living on the borders of the Ukraine, about ready to be invaded. You know, we haven't really been invaded in Canada for a long time, but could you imagine a military power ready to invade our land? How distressing that would be. What's it gonna take for us to get on our knees? What's it gonna take for us to begin to cry out to God, say, have mercy on us? And begin to say, Lord, what is it you require of me, oh God? This isn't, you know, I think what's happened in North America, we've made a Christianity that God serves us. And I know God does serve us. But the question is, are we willing to serve him? And are we willing to take God on his terms and not on ours? See, I think we've tried to communicate to the world, you can have God on your terms. That doesn't exist, folks. It doesn't work. It's not the way it happens. We need to come to God on his terms. We need to cry out to God. God is calling us back, calling his people back to himself. How many say, I want to respond? I want to respond to God's call. I want to look up. I want to live. I want to respond to what God's doing in my life. So, Lord, we just cry out to you this, 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 this day. We just ask, Lord, that you would do a profound work of grace inside of our souls. Lord, I pray right now that you would do a work that would break up fallow ground in our hearts, that you would address things in our lives that are not pleasing to you, that you would search us and, and see what's going on in our lives and within our nation. And Lord, show us, you know, first of all, where we need to confess, ask for forgiveness. And then we need boldness, Lord, a boldness to share the gospel of Jesus Christ unashamedly, unreservedly, with a deeper sense of urgency than ever before, Father. Forgive us for not doing that. There are so many people around us in our community right now, they're lost and they were without hope. I pray, Lord, you would help us in these days, Lord, begin to cry out to you in a way we've never done before. And I pray, Father, that you would awaken us and that you would empower us and that you would send us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.